for tuning in to the Catch Podcast. Brought to you by Dark Horse Tackle. The best American small business baits you've never heard of, stocked in a monthly box. Use promo code the Catch 5 off and save $5 off your first monthly subscription to the Weekend Warrior Box. Here are your hosts, Matt Souders and Brad Hicks. Matt, my dude, what's up, man? What's going on, buddy? How you doing? Good, man. Just, you know, about to get our learn on in this episode. Dude, I'm so excited. So, uh, before I start getting way too far into it, let's do some housekeeping stuff because I always suck at doing that. Yeah. Uh, So, like always, these are brought to us by Dark Horse Tackle, the best subscription box you can ever get. Um, Definitely, I think the, the quarterly box won't be out yet when this comes out. Like, they should, I believe they still have time to pick it up. Oh, man, I got to look. Uh, it, it might be, it, no, it might air a day after the, this episode might air a day after they, they ship. Well, we'll talk about the quarterly box anyway. Yeah. It's something you really need to get on. Um, you'll be getting in the next quarter, but you'll get to see all the dope stuff that comes in this quarterly box, uh, probably in an episode here shortly, uh, unboxed by me. Cause I love the quarterly box. It is awesome. Um, yeah. You got any other housekeeping stuff or we just jump right into it? Cause I'm pumped. Um, I was thinking of something a little bit ago. I just can't remember what it is now, so it's probably not super important. But I was about to say it must not be important if you can't remember it. Yeah. So we've recorded two episodes this week. So me and Matt, we don't really have a trip to talk about like we usually do, uh, beginning of the episode. So we can just jump into it. I was about to say the only trip I have is I almost got ran off the road by a semi this morning, <laughs> and I was really ticked off to the point like I followed him into a truck stop. And he got out and like 12 other semi-truck drivers got out and I drove away. <laughs> <laughs> Not today. Because the worst, the worst thing would happen is I would have gone to jail or something stupid. Yeah. So like, and then there would be no show is. tonight. So there would be zero show. There would be, I would convince <laughs> the CEOs to let me record a show from behind bars. <laughs> that would be awesome. Coming to you from prison. This is Matt. Yeah. Welcome to the catch. Coming to you from the county jail. Welcome to the catch podcast. That would be that would it's cool to think about, but also I don't ever want to do that. So yeah, I'm not gonna give our viewers if they want that, you're not getting it. It is what it yeah. is. But let's jump in to this episode. Super pumped. Uh, we had our guest on when we were on Paddle and Finn when we did the on waters. I'm wearing the hat. I pretty much wore this yeah, me hat too. Like nonstop for of course you would wear it because I'm wearing it. But in my defense, I've worn it pretty much like nonstop since I've got it. Um, but we had him on to talk about the app on water, which me and Brad have both kind of started using and actually putting into our toolkit, uh, when we're going out on river floats and stuff, especially for areas we're not super familiar with few and far between most places we fish, but it's still helping. Um, but like to welcome Torin from on water. How you doing, bud? What is happening, fellas? Not much. Welcome back to the show. Or, Glad to be back. I guess. I guess it's, it's welcome not, to the show because this is to the a show. new show. Exactly. I'm not <laughs> used to it. Yet, different. 
just a little bit. So uh, for everyone who didn't listen to the Paddle and Fin final cast, go back, listen to the On Water app. We cover some great stuff, get to know him a little bit. But for the ones who don't know who you are, Torn, kind of give them a, ba- a background, you know, what you do, how you got there, the goods. Yeah, sure. So uh, as Matt said, my name's Torn Shirk. Uh, I'm from central Pennsylvania, born and raised kind of an outdoor recreationist, hunting, fishing. And really just got enamored in it at an early age. Um, I've always been um, goal-oriented in kind of a, a competition, whether that's with myself or uh, people that I recreate with. Is in, again, hunting, fishing. Um, and because of that, it has really drove me to think outside of the box of fishing and how to become a better angler what's going to give me the edge up, not necessarily on the fish or the people that I'm fishing with, but me from the day before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a lot of that is just knowledge. So understanding the biology aspect of fishing. And then that led me into uh, going to West Virginia, majoring in wildlife and resource, and then becoming a wildlife biologist, doing that for, uh, I think it was like seven years. And then eventually after that, I moved on from kind of the public sector and got into the private sector and brought my uh, biology knowledge to the commercial space in both the fishing and hunting industry. And now I am the curation team manager at On Water. Uh, hopefully very soon going to be the biggest fishing app in the world. <laughs> There we go. I'm about it, man. I'm about it. Uh, me and Brad have talked, especially to, we've had people ask us when we talk about on the show, I've had a couple people message me like, what app are you talking about and whatnot? But that episode was awesome just because of how in depth it goes. And I know when we talked then you guys are going out and doing more with more rivers, getting out more areas, things like that, dude, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm excited. Um, but we brought Torn back. We kind of talked about it on that episode where we wanted to kind of dig onto the nerdier side of rivers. Like, there's a lot of questions that me and Brad will ask, and we'll try to sound intelligent when we're talking, but we're both not. So it doesn't really work out when we're talking to each other. But, like, just when it comes to a subject matter expert, you know, you have the background to do it, especially with being in the public sector as a biologist for river systems and stuff like that. So kind of just, we want to kind of dig into that and kind of, you know, answer some questions that tickle the brain. It's my new favorite phrase. I've been saying a lot lately is tickle the brain. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess, you know, I'm trying to think where I want to start because there's 4,000 different ways I want to go with this. Yeah. Um, let's see. I, mean, I wrote some. What? Well, so most of our listeners, they're all a bunch of river anglers like me and Matt and yourself. Um, so we kind of want to stick to rivers, and I know you live on the Susquehanna River, so that's going to pique a lot of interest with people. So why don't we just start there? Like, you lucky dog. That's the first thing I'm going to say. <laughs> it's so much better than ours. But yeah, I mean, we we can. I'm I'm fine with that. Let's definitely start there. Uh, well, since you were already going, where you want to start, Brad? Well, since we're in the summertime, I figured we could talk about like summer patterns and stuff. We, I mean, we did that with Josh Rinko, but getting that from a perspective from a biologist would be pretty cool. Oh yeah, for sure. So on our last episode, we had Josh Rinko from a over in Indiana, the wet boy nation. 
um, talking about how he fishes for smallies in the rivers during the summer. As a biologist and somebody with that background, kind of what are you looking at? Because me and Brad both struggle. We always catch dinks in the summer. It's like we find good fish occasionally, um, or we just cast four billion times and luck out just by statistics. So as a biologist, how are you looking at like summer patterns on the river? Like, are you, is there certain aspects you're looking for, certain patterns, things like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit in the last episode, but I think the first thing that you want to really start thinking about is uh, cost and efficiency and looking at it as a smallmouth, right? Mm-hmm. So probably most of your listeners are going to know this, but smallmouth aren't necessarily and aren't really warm water species. They're a cool water species. Mm-hmm. So their metabolic rate is best at a colder temperature than say a large mouth than say a catfish than say some of these more traditional warm water species. So in the summer you have multiple things happening. Uh, it, obviously it's going to depend on the watershed on the river system. Uh, but you have dissolved oxygen rates decreasing. Okay. So what that means is less intake of oxygen into that fish for efficiency. Uh, so that's going to drive up the cost to move, to feed, to survive, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Now going off of that thought process, what is going to immediately increase a small mouse efficiency? And I I want this to be like an open conversation because we'll work through it. Yeah, about so. it. I I would assume just from my experience, and I think Brad will agree to to for the efficiency standpoint. I would be guessing getting toward moving water that's a little bit cooler. Yeah, or or that's like a would... or like a small creek that's feeding water that's ten fifteen degrees cooler. Yeah, that's what I would like think. Near the mouth of it, not inside the creek. So you guys are absolutely on the right track. Um, Finding those cooler temperatures, finding that higher dissolved oxygen. So depending upon, again, what kind of watershed you're in, you're looking at super low flows. So those temperatures in the summer are going to heat up almost drastically. So you look for that turbidity, that increased uh, turnover in the water. If that water is only, let's say, 12 to 24 inches deep, it's not really still going to have that high of a dissolved oxygen content, mm-hmm. even though technically like it, it is compared to the rest of the river. It's not for a cool water fishery. So you're on the right concept of, all right, we need to be looking for uh, creek confluences that are going to be potentially cold water system dumping it. Mm-hmm. Now we talked about like those, those staging areas, right? Where fish are going to stage before they feed, but we mm-hmm. want to take a backtrack because this is where it really turns into like that bedding concept in the summer. There's going to be a small window of when big fish are feeding mm-hmm. because it's, it's not efficient. So everything decreases. Uh, where are those bedding locations locations going to be in the summer? Nine times out of 10, they're going to be in the deepest pools and they're pretty much just going to be being slugs the entire time. But mm-hmm. the pool's got to, the pool's got to have shade on them. That's what's going to keep them cool. Um, elevation is going to play a big factor in the potential sun hitting it, increasing that water temperature faster, which side of 
the uh, the river channel it's on, all right, is this pool going to stay shaded the longest throughout the day? All mm-hmm. right, more than likely that's going to be top tier bedding area. That's what I want to concentrate on. My window, uh, my bite window might only be from this is just arbitrary. Let's mm-hmm. say from eight to eight to eight forty five. That's your time frame, and then you move up and down the creek, up and down the watershed based off of those exact situations. All right. That's going to give you the highest efficiency as an angler. Uh, that's going to give you the highest likelihood of potentially picking up. But I think one thing to also factor is uh, smallmouth are mer- very migratory. Mm-hmm. So some of those smaller creeks that you're thinking of, you might have, depending upon the distribution and the density of fish, you might have a pile of fish moving up into those those smaller creeks, those smaller watersheds, and they actually leave the main creek. Susquehanna okay. is a prime prime example of that. So you'll have pools that are 12 feet deep um, that can hold smallmouth, but there's also the competition aspect. Mm-hmm. There's other cool water species out there that are fighting for that prime habitat, i.e. muskie, that are going to take over that entire pool. You're not going to see a pool with 12 12, 18 inch smallmouth and a 40 inch muskie in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even think about this. So like, I guess I, I don't know as much as as I wish I did, but I'm guessing, I mean, obviously you guys have a walleye, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, they're a colder water species because I know in the mm-hmm. summer, if you catch them, they're a wet towel, but they're like a wet towel in the winter too, but whatever. Um, so I'm guessing they would probably be fighting for those same spots because we don't have musky. While we have we have a few pike. I mean, me yeah, and Brad a, both caught. They're very rare, but they're, I mean, they're, they're more s- common up north. Yeah, they're so few and far between. So I guess it would be if a big walleye decides to go into a spot and a couple other big walleye go in, I don't know if they would be sharing that same pool. So it's the same concept as other cold water species kind of fighting over that prime real estate. Exactly. Do you guys have flatheads? We do. Mm-hmm. But, all right, there you go. I mean, just replace musky with flatheads. Okay. Are they cold? They're cold water species. I didn't know that. So they can tolerate warm, but yeah, they absolutely can thrive. It's it's, it's not oh. a matter of being being cold versus warm. It's cool. It's that in between. Cool. So like, gotcha. Look at it. Look at it at temperatures between like let's say really forty eight and fifty eight being like that optimal temperature range. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, neither did I. So that that would explain why uh, Brad, the catfish king, when he's in deep pools. Well, it just happened on Sunday. It was that we were on the other side of a dam, and he was fishing a deeper section. I was on the shallow side catching dinkies and walking. I'm like a dog. And Brad was on the other side of it, and he caught – I mean, that was a decent-sized flathead. Yeah, it's probably like 24, 25 inches. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like a bad size. And I'm sure that area you caught at one spot. I I bet there was probably more sitting down there, which is probably, probably why there wasn't many smallmouth on that side. Yeah, could that be. would make sense. Well, like for out here, um, the Susquehanna, the lower section of the Susquehanna, is loaded with fat flatheads. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just had a new state record caught, and huh. when when those like those pigs are being caught, like the sixty pounders, they are <sighs> right as basically it turns from cold to warm and you have that first initial spike in their metabolic rate. 
and they start putting on the feedback. And then as the season goes on, it's just like smallmouth, right? Like you catch that early, like before pre-spawn, when they when they just really start putting on the the feedback that mm-hmm. you can absolutely just stack bodies in a in a in a big eddy or a big pole where they're all stacked up. Mm-hmm. It's the same type of deal because they have the exact same, not the exact same, but very similar metabolic rates. <laughs> Interesting. And, yeah, I didn't know that. And then it slows down over the summer because their bite window is so so much smaller. Mm-hmm. So, Matt, I'm picturing this stretch that me and you have floated. It was the last one me and you floated a few months back. Mm-hmm. That spot where I've caught two twenties out of, you caught the eighteen just downstream from that spot. Yep. That bank was shaded. That bank is nine feet deep. It's that's the deepest part of that little stretch in between two riffles. They got two two uh two ways to go from there like they could either go upstream to the riffle that's a couple hundred feet or they could go downstream to that riffle that's a couple hundred feet so i think next time we float that part of the river we need to kind of fish deeper and slower for a little bit longer i think yeah i mean just based off the information he just gave that would be that would make more sense because we usually i wouldn't say we speed through it but we don't take our time yeah, ninety percent of the time, like we kind of flow with the current. Yeah, I will say, and whether it's currents going fast or currents going slow, we just go with it. Um, so and, yeah, that would make a lot more sense. Here's something that's interesting too. How much do you see or hear about um, speeding up tactics in the summer? So like ripping jerk baits, ripping mm-hmm. crank baits, that kind of stuff. Top water, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Top water, but is that really being the most efficient based on the biology of the species? Right. Like you, you look at the top dogs, man, what are they doing? They're really being tactical and picking apart the quality water. And that's how they're picking up the freaking the slops. That's how they're picking up the slops. Huh. So it's not good. Oh, with, with that said, what, what are you give, give us your top three baits for this time of the year, like fishing that kind of water. Oh man, dude, it varies. Um, obviously. All right. So I'll, I'll start it out with this as far as a caveat. Um, it really, it, for me, I'm a match the hatch type type of guy. Mm-hmm. So in the Susquehanna watershed, it's loaded with crayfish. Mm-hmm. What I'll do is I'll absolutely just pick apart, uh, that it, let's use that exact same kind of sample where you have a riffle that's maybe like a hundred feet to the next riffle. That's a hundred feet. Mm-hmm. And let's call it an even 10 foot pool. Well, you have all that dissolved oxygen from the up, the riffle above floating through that pool as well. Makes it a prime bedding habitat. I'm going through and I'm working from the bottom up and I'm picking that apart with the tube J. All right. Yeah. <laughs> on, on my way up, what I'm doing is if I'm not getting bites almost immediately, I'm, I'm cycling through colors. I'm cycling through colors. Okay. All right. Now, once I got the, the color figured out, all right, now I'm going to probably go around of, all right, how aggressive can I get with these fish to pick them apart? So let's say it's uh, a tube jig that is a, a, a crayfish color, uh, orange and black. All mm-hmm. right. So I might switch over to like a bandit um, crankbait and 
retrieve back at like a medium speed, pause, let it float, let it float, retrieve back. All right, pause, let it float. And I'm what I'm trying to judge is, all right, how far away from the bite window am I? Mm-hmm. Because they were feeding at some point. It's mm-hmm. and if, depending upon the time of day, it's a matter of am I too early or am I too late? Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That that makes total sense. And it, breaking it down that way, I mean, you are like it's tactically and efficiently breaking down an area instead of like what a lot of us, me and Brad, are uh, subject or suspect to this too. Going in, throwing in a couple of times with the jig, like we were throwing the tube pretty much nonstop on Sunday. Yeah. Throwing the tube, throwing the tube, throwing the tube. And if they weren't getting bite, we were just moving, throwing tube. And we probably passed some prime spots. Oh, yeah. Like there's one spot where you and me rarely ever catch fish that is in between a riffle and then in between the other riffle that goes more farther downstream, where we right where we that, that rock area is. Mm-hmm. And it gets deeper right there. I mean, what he's saying is literally kind of just like that. All that uh, oxygen's running right through there. So it's like just finding the bite window. And you're kind of you're going through with the tube until you find the color. And then you're finding what retrieve works best if it's fast, medium, whatever. Like that's, dude, that's yeah, and, scientific. And that retrieve part, that's that's for to increase my efficiency, right? So if I can get them on the crankbait, all right, now I'm going to go through and I'm just going to try to wipe them out. And then I'm going to move on. Uh, mm-hmm. If I, if I can't wipe them out, all right, I'm going to go back to the tube jig. All right, I got the color down, and now it's just a matter. Of this is this is the way it's going to be for the day until the until the bite turns off. Mm-hmm. You might have to hit it by a, a foot by foot box, and that entire run, you have to fish every foot by foot box because they're only willing to move that far mm-hmm. because they don't want to waste the uh, the calories. Right, that makes sense. So that, that's typically why, if you at least for me, certain top waters like when me and Brad, Brad loves to say this, whopper ploppers, everyone loves them, but they only catch small fish. It's the same, right? Those smaller fish are, well, they're smaller, so they're able to exert a little bit more energy to kind of chase stuff mm-hmm. than, you know, those bigger fish who they have to dis, uh, dissolve oxygen a lot more efficiently and think about what they're doing to, you know, support their body weight. So that's, yeah. I mean, that would make sense why they're not one to hammer a whopper plopper unless you get them during that bite window well think about it like this too here's a good analogy and i don't know like think of think of supreme athletes right what it requires for them for their diet to maintain that body and then like we we can hang out and sit on the couch and eat potato chips and do whatever we want (laughs) and that's that's fine yeah but we don't we don't operate like supreme athletes it's the same exact type of concept. Like the requirement for smaller fish isn't the same requirement for like those 18 three pounders plus. And that, that does make sense when you put it that way, because you sit there and think about athletes like Tom Brady or Michael Phelps or something. And you hear about them eating like 12,000 calories a day. I'm like, gosh, if I did that, I would gain like 50 pounds pretty quick. I would feel like death and I've probably yeah, done that. And I yeah. just, I, I mean, every time you glutton, it's just, man, I feel like I couldn't move, but these guys are eating like 12,000. I think it was, it was Michael Phelps. I was reading an article. He read, he ate like 14,000 calories a day leading up yeah. to the Olympics. And the dude looked like he weighed 180 pounds soaking wet. Yeah. It's like, Crazy, I mean, 
so it's the same concept where those larger fish are they're having to so answer riddle me this are those larger fish while they're are they taking the time to eat a bigger meal like during the day let's say that bite window is kind of you're farther out from that bite window and you you're catching bigger fish with that tube and that one by one or foot by foot is it more like I don't have to move far to get this bait or is it like it's an easier meal or is it I'm looking for something that's worth my time? Cause that's something I always, I always thought I knew like, Hey, uh, you throw a Ned rig and you catch some fish and then I switch to a six inch swim bait and then I catch a bigger fish. And it was like, Oh, that fish was just, he saw that and he said, that's worth my time. That's like yeah. always my go-to. So am I right in saying that or just stupid? No, no, no. Um, you are right to a certain degree, but it's deeper than that. Like you have to break it down more. All right. So uh, let's use that exact same scenario again. All right. We are on the outside of the bite window. Is it more efficient for a, let's just call them Supreme athletes to just move an inch and pick up a hundred crayfish and feed on them? Or is it, more efficient for them to just go and crush another smallie that's potentially like six inches all right mm -hmm. it all it, it really depends and it's going to depend i think a lot of that it's more so uh dependent upon the time of year so you can throw those big baits at various times of the year and have a, a larger roi and the windows be bigger in the summer those windows are a lot smaller mm. gotcha. so it, it, it it's it's not necessarily like black and white where it's like big baits, big fish, uh, but potentially less fish or uh, small baits. And then you just got to sift through the bodies. Yeah. But I did, I did want to rewind and talk about something that you mentioned earlier where you guys were talking about top water. So, and I, I'm sure this is probably going to be a little contentious, but all right, let's think about top water in the summer for a second. Are you getting actual feed or are you getting reaction strikes? I always thought it was reaction. Yeah, so unless, did I. I don't... Unless you're fishing like the head of riffles or something. So as far as how I look at that kind of stuff, like top water is absolutely effective. And it, it can be very effective certain certain situations, certain times of the year. But it's not the same as fishing off of biology. Mm-hmm reaction strikes are, are, are totally different. Okay. Interesting. So it kind of break that down because like, for instance, I know we're talking about smallmouth, but I have a lot more, like if you're on a major lake and you see shad busting and stuff, I know I can throw a fluke in there and get or not a fluke, but a, like a top water plug or something and just walk it. And I'm getting a ton of hits. So they're feeding. So do smallmouth kind of do the same thing to where if they're in a feeding pattern and you see those, like me and Brad see those little, I don't know if they're shiners or minnows or whatever they are, like jumping because like, they're getting chased by something. You can Is it the same concept? Like if I threw like a topwater spook and walked it over there, that's more of a feeding bite or is it still just like a reaction bite because the fish is already chasing something else. He sees something, he just hits it. Another, uh, and I'm, I'm really trying not to like make this sound like cop-outs, but again, they're like all situational and um, mm -hmm. they go both ways. So gotcha. depending upon, if, like if you're matching the hatch, uh, I would say you're more likely to get uh, 
a feed bite than necessarily a reaction bite. All right, now let's say you have that exact same scenario. And let's say it's um, owl wives. Let's say it's a school of owl wives. Mm-hmm. And what's, you, you'll have like, you'll have maybe like five smallies jam up uh, a school of owl wives and they'll bust them just like striped bass do to bunker in the ocean, just like tuna do to various bait fish. And then they come back and eat them. What you throw is there a spook in there that's six inches bigger than all the other owl wives. It immediately is the only thing that they can concentrate on because it sticks out compared to everything else. Mm-hmm. That's a hundred percent reaction. Gotcha. You see, you see that, I mean, like the, Yeah, I, I've always uh, assumed like when I did that, it was like I, it was one of two things: either I'm just catching fish and I'm like, yeah, they're feeding on it because they think it's like everything else, or it's I'm throwing it in there and it's so it's much larger and they're saying. If I'm the fish, I'm saying, what is that? Why is it here? I'm going to bust it because this is my whatever territory. So they're, they're, yeah, it's more like a, yeah. I, a smallmouth are so much more aggressive than, in my opinion, than other black bass that they, like, if they see something that's in their territory, I think of them kind of not, I think of them like a wolf personally, because mm-hmm. if they see something, it's not, they don't know what it is. It's in their space. They just hit it. Like that's what like if you get those, especially on larger swim baits, larger spooks, and they hit it and it's sideways, is they just really bashed it to say go have away. Have you have you guys ever been on a bite where you're just absolutely ripping jerk baits, like just cranking them, and they're like mm-hmm. they're just smoking the shit out of them? Yep. Yeah. Usually that, in the that fall. happened. <laughs> I'll say that happened. Me and him went out to a spot and we caught like six fish back to back to back to back to back, and we oh, that I was, was awesome. I was dude. ripping that jerk bait like I couldn't I couldn't work it fast enough to get them to hit it. Exactly. Exactly. Now, in in that experience, did you have multiple fish come in and chase? I did. Yeah, I saw two come in after. So that like that is like the personality of a smallmouth, and I don't really want to call it personality, but it's like that's the aspect of competition. So mm-hmm. you get those bait balls all piled up, and you have you throw in a bigger spook. It could be potentially competition, and they're just fighting another potential competitor for their forage they oh, may that's... necessarily be trying to eat it they oh, just want to knock sense. them out of the way and then you end up getting them hooked um, right. th- that to me is still considered a reaction strike necessarily than an actual feed strike right um, yeah i mean that's like the ultimate reaction i think it was uh slayton the creek crawler he made a video he had a underwater camera i think it was him it was either him or uh tactical bassin but they had an underwater camera and they were looking at a Oh, what was it? It was either if it was slanting, it was a it was a crawl bait of some type. That's why I think it was him because I think it was the Nico crawl. And a smaller smallmouth came in, and this bigger one just knocked it right out of the way, just smacked it to get to that bait. <laughs> and I was cool. like, "Whoa!" I didn't know they just beat the crap at each other. I thought I knew they ate each other because bass are all cannibalistic. But he, I mean, he wasn't trying to eat it. He just moved it out of his way to get to the. Oh bait. yeah, That's yeah so. I've had I've had days on the Susquehanna in the spring when like that kickover just happens and you time it right, and uh, I'm in the boat and I'm ripping jerk baits back as like literally like you said as fast as you can you can't bring them back fast enough, and I'll use like a 120 lucky craft and I'm catching oh, two yeah. bass on each treble you know what I mean mm-hmm. I'm having I'm having four or five bass chase it back and. They're going boom, boom. They're running into each other to try to kick them off the bait so that they can get to it. That's 
one of those rare situations where it's not a reaction. That's an actual feed. That's cool. Yeah, that is definitely cool. <laughs> I'd like to the, I'd like to see underwater vi- video of that. And those are those are triple digit days. Yeah, I, I've never had a triple digit day. <laughs> nope. We've we've collectively had a triple digit day. Oh yeah. But not not individually. I mean, I have like when I when I we used to go to Erie, yeah, during the spawn and pre-spawn and stuff, and you would see that to an extent. Like, I've never seen. I've caught a couple doubles, but I've never seen like a wolf pack essentially of four or five, six fish come in with it. I've seen two or three. And actually one, the last time I saw it happen other than the jerk bait was, is in the fall. I was throwing a swim bait, like a Kytec. Maybe I think it was a four inch thrown out there. And I had one hooked fighting them back. And there was two or three smallmouth hit. Cause I thought it was bigger. And the time they got there, they were smacking this fish that was hooked, trying to trying to get it. And one had it on the – it was an underspin. Had the underspin in its mouth like they oh, were yeah. fighting it. So I guess that would be a feed – that was a feeding thing because it was right before, you know, they were going into winter. They were trying to, you know, put the fat on. And so that that's cool. Now that I – you've explained it that way and I realized what it was, that's, that's sick. And you get into those situations. This is where we get lazy as anglers, right? So you'll get into those situations. And what you need to do is, all right, you might start catching them on spook, but what you should do immediately is switch over to something smaller and see if you can get them on the feed strike. And then if you're stacking up more bodies on the feed strike, stay on that. And then if you're not, go back to the spook and now get them on the reaction. Good. See, I've never, I've never thought of that doing it that way. Well, I don't know. So Brad, maybe, maybe this is exactly what Brad told me to do. I'm pointing the wrong way. Cause I'm usually on that side. Well, I'm usually right. not on that side, but I don't know. Uh, don't know. Who cares? But Brad, uh, Brad, we were, it was last, I think it was last summer. It was that day. James went with us on that one stretch. Yeah. And I was, Brad was catching him on the whopper plopper. It was probably reaction strike. And he was like, if they miss it, just throw a Ned rig back in there. And, yeah, follow and, it up, and they and they get it pretty much every time. I, I mean, I did it three or four times. Got him. He was doing it, so it was basically we were hitting them on the reaction on the whopper plopper, and they were missing it, throwing the net back in, and then we got them on a feed strike. Is that essentially what it was? Yep. We could have caught yep. so many more fish if we did that. Well, I I always do that every time I get a miss on top water, I throw that in there, and I actually learned that from Drew Gregory. Um, uh, and I told Matt about that. He was just like, "Really? That's weird." He tried it literally the first miss that he had he caught a fish on the trd following it i up. mean immediately like it was, <laughs> I, was I didn't like, even I reel it did. all the way in i just dropped it and skipped the trd in there and it was just boop i was like oh this works it's so, almost like 75 like percent of the time that works think well think about it think about it from like actually what's happening right so you got the whopper flopper coming through they're pushing another fish out of the way all right for the competition and then they're racing right back down to feed quick before that other fish comes back. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It, 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 it's it, That's a huge tactic uh, in saltwater fisheries, like tarpon, striped bass, blah, yeah. blah, blah. I always thought that the reason that happened was because they hit the top water. They thought they might have killed it, and whatever is floating down there after you follow it up, they thought maybe it's just like dying, but I don't know. Maybe, but I would if I was – I would bet that it's more so they're trying to feed before that other fish comes back. Gotcha. Good to know. That's cool. Yeah, that, <laughs> that puts in a lot more perspective and it makes a lot more sense to me 
that because I kind of thought the same thing what you said, like, oh, they missed the top water, or maybe they thought because sometimes you'll get smallmouth, uh, they'll come up and like a crankbait and you end up foul hooking them. Happened to me on Sunday, yeah, I got them stuck in the side of the head right when I felt it. I forget what bait I'm throwing and I set the hook like an idiot every time, and uh. <laughs> And I'm, I, they'll come up and they'll like sideswipe something like to hit it to stun it. Cause I've watched largemouth do that. Like if something's swimming, mm-hmm. they'll come up and stun the crap out of it and then eat it when it's stunned. Mm-hmm. So I always thought it was the same thing. Like what Brad said, like, oh, they, they think they killed the water plopper. So they're going after that TRD. But now the more I think about it and the more I've read now, again, smallmouth don't listen to the, or read the same things we do. But the more I've read is, I mean, smallmouth aren't stupid. So I'm sure they can discern between a TRD and a whopper plopper. I would assume yeah. so. So, yeah, how you explain it makes way more sense. Like, they're knocking another fish. They're knocking competition away to go go right back and feed to something. Oh, we see it. Before he gets back, I'm going to smoke that so he can't get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. I, I've, I've gone through pods of smallies on the, on the Susquehanna, on the river, where uh, they're in a feeding frenzy on rusty crayfish, and they're literally tearing the crayfish out of them, each other's mouths. Jeez. Like 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 a pod of like 20, 30 fish and they're just swimming through and then they basically they 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 push them all up into the the, the middle column of the river. Mm-hmm. And then they're it's literally like sharks, dude. It's just like all over the place. That's crazy. And I, I saw one literally rip it in half. Like the one had it and it ripped the tail out of the other mouth. Jeez, dude. That's awesome. That's that's insane. Because that is, I mean, you're not wrong. That is like a shark. That's shark behavior. Like you see that Mm -hmm. in feeding frenzies. I've watched uh, another reason why I hate the ocean. I've watched a feeding frenzy on like a giant bait ball, and it was I think it was two makos were just tearing through this bait ball, being scary fast and scary, scary. And uh, with white bass too. Now that you mention it, so I've big big school of white bass like fighting over a big ball of bait fish. But it's, just, I mean, it's, I've watched that Mako eat something and the other Mako come just rip it right in half and just take mm-hmm. it right as well. It's shark behavior. That's, see, that's why smallmouth are awesome because they're so aggressive. It's amazing. Yep. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> so, one thing I had somebody, I was talking about this and he was like, dude, you should ask, you know, what do, because he's always wondered, like, how do low dams really affect the river? Like, obviously, me and Brad know we can fish there. We can catch fish there because I'm guessing now that we've talked, the water's a little bit more oxygenated. It might be a little bit cooler. Um, but how do they really affect kind of the river in and of itself? Like, does it does it create a different environment, technical quote, for the fish or anything like that? Yeah, so low dams, um, low dams are very interesting. Um mm-hmm. So I would absolutely say that they create like a microclimate, if you will. All right. Mm-hmm. So think about when you have bait fish spawning. All right. They're going to move up the river channel and it's going to depend on the size of the watershed, the water quality, blah, blah, blah. There's other variables in it. But from like just basic biology, fish move up and down watersheds to spawn to get to uh, ideal habitat. All right. You're going to have potentially higher oxygen like you said, because you have the, the turbidity of the water there bringing in oxygen. Um, you're going to have cover and then 
you're going to have obviously a blockage. Um, I, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure I'm understanding the question. Like, is it is it how does it affect it in a in a good or bad way, or is it like all right? Yeah, how, what can how I does it like in a fishable way? Like, does it? It's like you. I try to explain it the best way I could. I was like, I, the best way I can explain it is I catch fish at low dams. It just is what it is. Uh, they're there. Some, but most of the time when I do so it, why I are they there? Yeah. Like why are, why are they pushing up when me and Brad go, we typically, there's one dam. I wouldn't even call it a low dam, but there's one it's on that same stretch. We've said that stretch like four times now. Someone's going to figure out what it is. And it's going to tick me off. <laughs> um, but like we, we've caught big fish there, but then other places like where we went Sunday, it was a low dam. And I mean, I caught like three or four, nine inch smallmouth. So what kind of, I guess, how does a low dam affect fishability for like that area? I would suppose. So that question is like super variable. So let's, let's break okay. those two low dams down. All right. What, what were, what was the difference between the, the place where you caught bigger fish versus the place where you caught smaller fish? Describe the habitat, describe like the potential forage there, describe like the cover. Uh, f- I would say forage would be the same, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, farther. I think there's what other low dam are you talking about exactly? I know the first one. What's the other one? The one, the one we were at Sunday. Oh, okay. Yeah, that one, that one don't have much cover. It might, might have two laydowns, three laydowns. It's, it's smaller, it's which most. Yeah, but say it's a little bit more shallow. The other, but the other one's not super shallow or super deep. I mean, it might no, that's be like six feet. foot. Well, I mean, there's certain sections that we were at Sunday that was, you know, four foot. Yeah. I mean, if we, I could have walked most of it, but it would have been above my, like closer to my waist. Right. Um, but the other one, it has a, I will say it has a lot more moving water and it's kind of broken up and it's, a, it's bigger, obviously, but it's, it's a little deeper. I wouldn't say a ton. And I wouldn't say there's really there's only at that other one there's only two real big laydowns. I mean there's yeah there's there's actually there's none there when when I went this past weekend. But oh so it washed so, away yeah yeah so where it comes down and then it like curves and gets slower there's like a little drop right there it's like a concrete man made just straight drop down to the bottom and it's like four to six feet all the way across there and there's big chunk rock right at the bottom of that drop off. So, how high is the low dam? Probably eight to twelve feet high. Yeah, but I'll say that one's pretty tall. Yeah. How how tall is the other one? Two feet. <laughs> yeah, I'll say it's maybe two to three feet above the water. So that's the major difference right there. You have uh, basically it's a, a plunge pool. Those plunge pools are super hot, uh, oxygenated super super oxygenated so the one with the eight foot drop that's where you're catching the bigger fish mm-hmm. yeah it, it, it's the it's the plunge pool that that's going to be my guess based off of the biology immediately so not only is it going to it's already deeper there it's more oxygenated it's going to have more forage there because it's more oxygenated and then because it is also a plunge pool it's a totally different type of habitat there's cover from birds there's cover from uh, for the bait fish to potentially hide from the predators, but it also makes a uh, an area that the fish can bed in, stage in, and feed in. 
So it has okay. all three versus that other one where it's really just at best a short white window feeding location. That makes sense. And so the, the bigger dam right here, there's an island almost like 20 yards off of where it yeah, drops I was in. Say it's like right there. And water runs down both sides. The water gets ankle deep on both sides as you go down. Um, do smallmouth travel up and down that to get to the uh, dam during the day? I don't know about necessarily during the day, but yeah, they'll absolutely travel up and down that. So, I always thought they would go through that, but it's like in my mind, I've always like looked to see if I could see fish like sticking out of the water, running through riffles and stuff. I never see it. So I'm just like, I don't know if they do or not. Probably yeah. a lot of that stuff happens at night. Okay. It happens in the evenings. So you'll see it like they might feed, they might move up there potentially the night before stage feed from five to seven and then they're out by seven thirty. Okay. And that makes more sense. Cause last year we got to that spot super early, like six 30. And mm-hmm. that's when we were you, me, Justin, we were all catching good sized fish. And then when we went earlier this year, we didn't get out there till like nine granted it was in, it was earlier in the year, but I mean, maybe that makes sense. And like you said, that, that plunge pool has, they can, they can bed, uh, bed stage and feed all at the same time. So is it by saying that, is it possible there's fish that just don't leave that area unless like once they get to winter and maybe, but they don't leave that area during like feeding times. So the, the fourth thing that you're missing there is the spawn. And if that has all three, the fourth reason is the only really reason to, re- to leave. There might be things that cause the habitat to change. Uh, there might be areas that come up to be more, uh, energy efficient that'll cause them to leave but for summertime habitat yeah i mean w- we have something just like that on the susquehanna but it's like a i don't know it might be like a, a, a 12 to 15 foot plunge pool dam mm-hmm. and dude i mean it's not even fair <laughs> yeah you guys river something else man i'd love to get out there and fish it uh, hopefully that's happening this year hopefully yeah, fingers awesome. crossed because it was supposed to happen last year justin oh no that wasn't justin's fault that was indiana still justin loser um <laughs> holding grudges <laughs> i i am dude because i really wanted to go last year yeah, um so by say like it's, it's the if the fourth thing spawn being the only real reason they leave that's essentially during the summer kind of like what you said you got one on the susky it's it's free for all basically all the time it's just a finding the bite window or b getting reaction strikes in that spot mm-hmm. essentially exactly yep and and because those habitats are so small and they're so prime you'll 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 smoke them on reaction strikes because they're defending the territory right yeah that makes sense because we most of the time when i'm fishing that spot it's usually a moving bait or something like that it's never really finesse yeah i was about to say i don't think I think the number one bait that does well for me in that spot is I've hammered them on jerk baits and bigger, like the my smaller spinner baits. I, I've got fish on them, but my bigger spin, like my mega bass, big old half ounce that I typically wouldn't throw, I tie on for that spot. Yeah. And I smoke them at that spot. That's so cool. that makes a lot more sense. And what's awesome is now, it ma- now everything makes more sense why it's happening. Like, that's why we do these shows, man. I know. 
that's 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 the name of the game like so you can go in and if you start looking for research papers you'll you'll look at like you kind of mentioned it earlier brad all right so you never see the fish moving through those passages right Mm -hmm. through those channels but what they do is they pit tag them are you guys familiar with what a pit tag is no i'm not no so like you ever see on like any spy movie they have like the the tracker that they inject into the person's body yeah yeah it's 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 a pit tag and they do it for fish too and they'll have various places on the river that are basically send out uh, a radio wave and then every time that that pit tag goes through there it tracks it mm. look at those migration movements like check that out if you have that if you if you have a, a fishing game or a dnr or whatever see if you can find that kind of resource in your area and that'll get you pointed for sure in the right direction of what you're seeing for travel. Mm-hmm. And it's always tied to certain dates, certain water conditions, certain variables. See, so we, we don't have anything like that here in Ohio, but we do have on the ODNR website, it's like an appendices. So they electroshock the river. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if they update it every five or 10 years or what, but Last time I looked at it, I remember looking at different stretches and it would show the results of smallmouth, bait fish, what kind of bait fish, how many smallmouth they electroshocked, what size they are and everything. So that's kind of mm-hmm. kind of the same thing you're talking about. It, it, it's in the realm. So if, if your state agency is not doing it, the next best thing and these they're definitely do it is like look in the universities. So research what your top university are, universities are for wildlife and fisheries resource. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a freaking pile of papers in there. Cause that's, that's what the professors are doing. Like they have to do research to stay relevant and keep their jobs. So that's okay. the, that's another good area to, to find that kind of information. If, if you're your DNR or whatever, is not doing it. Matt, I don't know if you follow him, but uh, Steve Coomer, He's yeah. a local local legend around here. He's the one that actually, um, he did a seminar at one of the fishing expos one year, and he actually passed out the uh, links and stuff for the appendices. I need to reach back out to him to see if he could send me those again because I can't remember the website. But if you guys are friends with him, reach out to him and ask him if you guys are interested because I'm sure he has them because I, I know I know he has them. Yeah, and once we get them, we'll we'll try to put it down below in the uh, description with those, so you can actually look it up. Especially in you're in this area, I try to look up uh, smallmouth pit tagging here, and there there was one, but it was just kind of explaining. I'm the DN, ODNR has a pit tagging uh, order form that I could buy one, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't look like there's been any studies. So, but that would be definitely something interesting to look at for the simple fact that. We talk about it. We talked about on the last or with the show with uh, uh, Shranko about, you know, smallmouth migration patterns. And it kind of explains because I always wondered, Brad, you know, he had his thoughts. I had my thoughts. I was like, man, I don't know how I've always thought that they move forever, like crazy distances. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've had some people say, you know, sometimes and like what you just said, if it, if a spot has all three areas unless they're moving to spawn or something more efficient, they're, they're not really moving. They don't need to. So I guess it's kind of a case by case basis on the fish. Like sometimes they have to move to 
get to those spots. And sometimes I guess if it has everything they need, there's no point in moving. Yeah. It, I mean, if you can sit at the kitchen table and eat a steak, why, why would you go drive an hour to go get one? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's true. That's that. I mean, that definitely puts it in perspective. That's cool. And yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it leads, it's, it, it, it uh, uh, I can't talk it. You're just getting excited. I am, dude. I'm getting super tell. excited. It's at, <laughs> like it's giving me more questions, like because it's case by case basis. So now it makes me think like there's certain spots that where we know we can catch fish there, and that might be because either in the spot has it's right near Riffle, so there's oxygenated water. There's tons of bait fish when we go through there, and the only reason they would move is because of spawn. So that's why we're catching all these fish that we actually in the episode right before this drew, we were like, yeah, there's spots we can catch fish right here, and we know they're there, and it's they don't need to move. There's no point in moving yep. unless they're going to spawn. Cause that's the one aspect that they don't have at that spot, but then they're spawning going to spawn. And they're probably, I'm guessing they're coming back because they're, they know that area. So they're going to come back year after year after year. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Matt, I'd like to, I'd like for you to ask him that question about migrating that you asked Drew. Oh, I was, I was honestly trying to think about it. I can't remember what I said. Uh, you were was saying it the half, half? No, about moving half a mile from where from where they were born. Oh, I had read that in smallmouth when they're when they're born and they spawn, they only ever typically move within a half mile of where they're at. And then I had talked to somebody. He's like, "Oh no, they." I mean, there was a study for largemouth after a tournament. Now this is a largemouth, but they also did it for smallmouth. That after they caught them, they moved them thirty miles away from where they caught them. Those fish staged in that cove for a week or two or two weeks got all their energy back and they had a small mouth go like 35 miles back to where they caught it at. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, like, I, I guess I'll, I'll put this question to you. Do small mouth, like when they spawn, do they ever just completely relocate and never go back? Or do they kind of just stay in that area that they were born in? You're talking about the fry. Well, I'm talking about small- the, as they no, grow like, up. As they grow up, because like this one small mouth, they caught it in a tournament. It was 35 miles away from where they caught it. They weighed it. They released it back in this cove. It stayed in the cove for like two weeks. And then they did it for a bunch of large mouth. Large, large mouth did it too. But this small mouth swam back over like a period of like, I think six, six or seven weeks, swam back 35 miles to in the same exact area it was caught in. Yeah. So that's really how fish work. That is their biology. So when they, when here's, here's the best way. And it, it's probably most relatable in salmon, salmonoids, right? So mm-hmm. salmon go, they spawn, they can smell where they spawn, they come back and then they die. The fry goes back and, and does the same thing. It's the same process, <clears throat> but the lifespan is just different. So it's constantly reestablishing the population in a given area. It's constantly reestablishing the population in a given area, right? So that smallmouth that swam at 35 miles back, that's its area. That's their homing beacons are absolutely ridiculous. They can oh. swim right back to where their their home range is, regardless as long as they're relocated in the same uh, watershed. Yeah, with, uh, with no barriers to, and no barriers. So. Yeah. Uh, I'm 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 a little hazy on this, but I'm almost 100% sure that it has to do with 
the smell of the water. Oh. So that's basically what they're doing is they're they're going back to the same watershed. So like let's say you were you were to take a small mouth out of uh the the GMR and put it in the Susquehanna. Similar watersheds, mm-hmm. but because that smallmouth doesn't have from the GMR, doesn't have the sense of like the GMR's smell, it's not going to be able to navigate up and down the Susquehanna watershed. Is that uh, harmful for the fish? I mean, will they not thrive if that happens? It depends. It depends on competition. Like that's how you get invasive species everywhere. Like that's how, I mean, it's really dependent upon the species. Okay. Um, well, I think that's how, like in in what is it, Washington, smallmouth are considered an invasive species, and yeah, which is which I don't know, I I don't know how I feel about that. I understand the biology of it, like hey, what's well, it's, it's ruining everything. their like trout fishing and stuff. It's yeah, but smallmouth are superior, so <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I should care, but I, don't care. I literally just had this conversation with a guy the other like just the other day. Uh, he lives in Montana. Was bitching about all the walleye in Montana. <laughs> and I was like, what do you got a problem on walleye for? It's like, they don't belong here. And I'm like, you guys don't have, I didn't, I, I totally didn't even think about it. Like walleye aren't native in Montana. And then I'm like, mm-hmm. well, dude, brown trout and rainbow trout aren't fucking native either. I, I, sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to cut. No, you're, you're <laughs> good. No, you're good. <laughs> well, so, yeah, I mean, he's, he's just like, a fish what, racist. What are we doing here? Exactly. Yeah. It's, 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 it's racist. It's racist against a superior fish. Trout are stupid. I'm just saying. I hate trout. I, I just don't like. I'm sorry, fly fishing guys. I know they they can be fun, and it's mostly because I, I I've caught a trout by accident, and I, I handled it. I didn't know I didn't know the procedure, and I handled it without putting my hands in the water and coddling it like the little <laughs> baby fish it is, and it died. Like I literally released it, it swam away and floated to the top and died. And I was like, that is a stupid fish. That's dumb. <laughs> So, I mean, well, musky are kind of similar too, right? You gotta kind of. Well, that's it. That's because they fight for two hours, and they literally they're warriors until the end. That I've caught a musky that I fought for like an hour and a half, and the dude tried to bite me and then died. Like it was just like I'm gonna take a piece. That is a different breed of fish. They are the Spartans of the fish world. (laughs) Them, uh, 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 long nose. I look like the dude from Jurassic Park. No, not Gar. (laughs) Deep sea. Uh, uh, sawfish, swordfish, oh, yeah. sawfish. no, sawfish. That's like a shark, I think, but whatever. Um, swordfish, if you once you get them out of the water because they like take them back and eat them, even after they've been out of the water for like 30 minutes and they see someone, they will still thrash with their last breath to kill whatever is there. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, they was it was a video I watched and I laughed. I shouldn't have laughed because it's mean, <laughs> but I also don't care. They, they caught this swordfish and it was on the deck of this boat for like an hour should have been dead out of water for an hour and it, you could see in the video the swordfish's eyes moved just a little bit and it thrashed its thing and those things are sharp like they're they're yeah. swords and cut this dude's leg open and he died because it hit the femoral artery Ooh, dead Ooh. and then it died immediately like the it, it slashed Karma. didn't move ever again <laughs> i was like oh my god it just killed him it killed the guy and uh That's yeah cool. so but trout, you sneeze at them, and they're like, "I've given up the ghost. I'm dead. Uh, it's stupid." But 
I don't know where we're at. That was a weird rabbit hole we just went down. Uh, <laughs> it's all good. Matt's oh, the good rabbit hole king. I am, dude. I love him. I make my house in one. That's where I bed every night, and I feed also, and I set up and everything. Um, no, you had mentioned taking – I would love to see a study, and I'm sure there, there may have been one. But with your – you know, take the fish out of the GMR, put them in the Susky. Does, would that fish – like Brad said, they wouldn't thrive, but would they, like, not know – at anything like they wouldn't be able to like the smell would be different even for the forage for example because we have crawls you guys have crawls would they not recognize without like maybe sight or getting closer to the fish to like where forage is at to try to thrive they they probably would i mean a lot of that stuff is again like super variable biology is affected by variables all right mm-hmm. so variables change the outcome of everything um if you were to take a, let's just say, seven-year-old smallie from the uh, GMR and put it in the Susky, it's probably going to die. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not, it's not going to know how to spawn. So the entire, I think, ecology and, and biology of that fish is going to be completely interrupted that it's going to cause so much stress that it's just going to die. Now, let's yeah. say you put you put like a year old smallmouth from uh, the GMR and put it in the Susky, probably a higher likelihood of survival. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why it's so important, important for people not to transport fishes, fish from one body to body of water to another. Uh, even if you're, you catch a fish below a dam and you think it's funny, I'm going to throw it above the dam. Just don't do it. The, and, does the oxygenated water from the dam, does that change like how, what the fish recognizes? Because it might be a different, I don't know, maybe it's a different smell. I don't know. Maybe the it cleans it, the turbo, turbulence or whatever. I don't know. Now I'm being uh, weird. Not to my knowledge. Not to my <laughs> knowledge. Um, but you make a good point, Brad. Like that, that kind of stuff right there is like really important. Um, mm-hmm. We are having issues with dudes throwing flatheads over dams yep. and they're going up the Susquehanna watershed just because they want to be able to fish further for flatheads up the yep. Susquehanna watershed and demolishing smallmouth populations. Yeah, I've actually heard that being an issue lately from somebody. I can't remember who it was, but uh, flatheads are becoming more invasive on the Susquehanna and it's not look like in 10 years that could be bad for smallmouth bass. And, and, and the, well, it's bad now. Like the, the smallmouth bass fishery isn't what it was 10 years ago. And it's like that in a lot of places. But the Susquehanna has had issues with pollution and stuff, and that's been taken care of and gotten better. The smallmouth bass fishery recovered really, really well. And then you have people being, in my opinion, very ignorant. You could call them mm-hmm. a bunch of different other things and moving invasives. <laughs> up and down the watershed that uh are then just putting that exact same pressure right back on them and now snakeheads yeah oh snakeheads those things are and they're they're aggressive as all they make they do they make muskies look like bluegills snakeheads are mean snakehead and bowfin man yeah, but Bofin, but I don't know if it's I, I think Bofin in Pennsylvania, certain parts of Pennsylvania is an actual natural species. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Bofin Bofin up here are natural species. Snakeheads are not. Yeah, Snakeheads they're from... are they're they're an Asian fish, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not even they were 
invasive down in Florida too, aren't they? Yeah, and I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure. Yeah. They were invasive in Florida and they I read somewhere that it was either I think it was Georgia. They made their way to Georgia through rivers from Florida and started. And they can live out of water. Day. They can crawl on land. They're that horror films, dude. Oh my They're goodness, horror films. That's crazy. I uh I want to catch one though. The big I do too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean that would that would be sick. Uh I've always I've always seen them uh when I was it, not in the G more. I'll kill it yeah. immediately. I don't like if I catch an Asian carp, I, 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 you probably should. I should kill Asian carps when I catch them, but I just hate them anyway. So I just want to get them away from me as quick as you I can. You remember the pile of dead ones we saw about a month ago? Yeah, I, uh, like 30 of them. And I didn't feel bad because they're Asian carp. They're super invasive. I don't know. I don't I, know what, what they do. I thought they were spraying for them out there. Is that, is that happening or is that not happening? I thought they were spraying for them in the Midwest. Uh, not that I've seen or heard, Mm-mm. at least in the GMR, but our DNR sucks. Like they don't care. So, I mean, they care more about Turkey and hunting because that's what bring people like yeah. to our part of the state. Deer hunting is what brings people to us. Like people from sure. Michigan that has great deer in the UP still come down here and take up all the public land. And it's annoying. Yeah. But I think they concentrate time. most of their efforts of fishing on like Lake Erie and stuff. Gotcha. Yep. And steelhead. Yeah. Yeah. It's stupid. DNR sucks. <laughs> Fish without a license. I'm, don't, I I'm would, joking. Buy a license. I would <laughs> gladly pay the fees that people pay in Tennessee to have that kind of fishery here. Mm-hmm. I would not. $50 a year? I, heck yeah, I would do that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's they take it so much more seriously, which is why, I mean, there's just certain aspects of like the rivers, like the great Miami is the best river in the state to fish for smallmouth. Mm-hmm. And most other States around us have better fishing rivers for fishing smallmouth. Yeah. And it's just because the DNRs care more to actually take care of it okay. and actually put the time in it. Except well, for Kentucky. We're better in Kentucky. Well, yeah, we're, we're better. Everyone's better than Kentucky at everything. <laughs> so just is what it is. I think, I think this might be a good thing to discuss. Um, since we're kind of on the biology and, we're going down the rabbit hole of the DNR. What you guys are describing sometimes is uh, a fault of the DNR, but sometimes it's also a a fault of us anglers. So the stakeholder with the biggest voice is going to make the biggest splash. Mm -hmm. Will fishing ever be bigger than hunting whitetails, hunting turkey in Ohio? Probably not. But the, the anglers of Ohio and a bunch of other states we I've seen it here in Pennsylvania. You absolutely need to get involved and cause a voice to make those changes happen, mm-hmm. to make shit happen as far as conserving your watersheds. Otherwise, if there's no stakeholders vested, you got nothing. That's true. And yeah, that's I, I know that's that's happening in Indiana right now because there's peti- petitions going around and everything about um, banning cast netting. For, for fish in the river on the white river and stuff. And I'm like, I've seen that here in Ohio and downtown Dayton. I've seen that on a stretch that used to be good. And I think it's mm-hmm. not good anymore because those people are taking the fish out of it. But I agree. So somebody needs to like step up, whether it be me or Matt or somebody else, we need to step up and do something about it. Petition. Well, the catch it's this catch podcast sponsored petition. Part of it, part of it is education. Part of it is 
just having these conversations on your podcast. Mm -hmm. Your podcast reaches X amount of people. Like now, this information, this knowledge, this type of conversation is happening and they're at least thinking about it. You know what I mean? Yep. That's kind of why we do it. That is very true. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything we haven't covered that we wanted to cover. I'm sure we could get into more like fall oh, and could. winter stuff, but well, know. that's why we can make a series. Yeah, we're not there we yet. Can, so. I'm about to say we can talk about the fall when we get to the fall and talk about that because I love these types of episodes for two reasons: one, it makes me think more about it, and two, it like I took notes. It uh, I, I saw you with your pen. <laughs> yeah, I went over like this is an old deployment book that's like got six pages left in it, and I was like, I'm gonna take as much notes as I can. I couldn't find a pen, so I was like, a map pen will work. Uh, but it answers questions. It, it makes more sense of certain, like the Whopper Plopper and then the Nedrig thing. It's the fish is pushing a competition away to get to feeding. That makes way more sense. And now that I know that, I can kind of use that in different situations to where I could throw a bigger bait to either A, catch a fish, or B, kind of maybe turn on its competitiveness to eat something. So maybe, you know, something along those lines. Uh, it just explains a lot more and it answers a lot of questions. Like I said, it makes me ask a lot more questions. But, I mean, knowledge is half the battle, and especially when it comes to fishing. I mean, you, you can luck into a lot of fish, but at the same time, if you have knowledge of how they act, how they react, how they feed, where they set up, things like that, and what your bite window is, for example, it's it, it kind of makes it a more thought-provoking hobby, I guess. Yeah. Matt, you're going to catch a 20 soon. I, I have a feeling. Yeah, because I'm going to use what I learned. <laughs> I'm pumped. Heck yeah. And I want to I say this last thing here. This type of fishing may not be for everybody, uh, but something to think about is – we've been harping on like variables throughout this entire conversation. Like next mm -hmm. time you're on the water, think about what the variables are that are causing you either one to not catfish, catch fish or two to catch fish. Store that in the logbook, whether you're actually writing it down or you're remembering it. And then think about the biology aspect. All right. Mm -hmm. Here were the variables. Here's how I applied the biology. And then it, all those pieces will start coming together you replicate it, and now you're stacking bodies. There you go. There's that uh, saying, Matt. Dude, I love it. When we were on the when we had the on the on water episode, he said that, and I was like, dude, that's how. Whenever I'm on them, I'm just gonna be like, dude, I'm stacking bodies, man. I love it. <laughs> dude, uh, dude, I love it. Um, all right, Torin. Before we get out here, if you got, do you have anything you want to shout out? Where they can find the on water app? Where they can find you? Things like that. Yeah, sure. So. Uh, you can uh, find the OnWater app uh, in the, the Google Play Store, uh, the Apple, the App Store. I'm not a Apple guy. I think it's called the, the App Store. App OnWater yeah. Fishing. Yep. OnWater Fishing. Um, I do want to let everybody know we, we're, we're currently in the works of V2. And from what I said earlier, uh, there's going to be way more to V2 than uh, – mm that earlier podcast, like I am super jacked. Um, they kind of opened the gates for me to really get after it. So it's going to be, it's going to be game changing. That's cool. Uh, you can follow the on water app um, on Instagram, Facebook, all the social platforms. If you want to get in touch with me, bounce questions off of me. Uh, my IG is torn.shirk. 
There you go. Which, if you follow me, believe me, I share whenever Torn puts something up, I share it. So it's usually mm-hmm. on the story. So you'll see it. Um, Torn, thanks again for coming on. I definitely uh, kind of what Brad said, and we can get into fall and winter. Definitely want to have you back on so we can kind of tear down those because everyone knows the fall is where they're they're putting the bags on. So I can't uh, you, wait for the fall, man. Neither can Yo. I, dude. I've. Uh, this is what you guys should do is you guys should come out here and we'll do a live podcast, fish the river and we'll do a fall episode and we'll put up some twenties for sure. We, Dude, we might it. be, we might be out there at the end of September. Yep. There, there you go. I'll say weather, we'll link up. Weather, yep. If the weather's right, man, that's a great time to be out here. Nice. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> I just want it to happen yeah. now. I'm sick of time. <laughs> But hey, brother, appreciate you coming on like always. Um, everybody, if you have any questions, like Torin said, reach out to him. He's open to answer some stuff. Reach out to us. I'm de- I'll definitely ask Torin because I won't know the answer. And <laughs> thanks as always for watching the Catch Podcast and uh, tight lines, everyone. Don't forget to leave us a review and everything too on your favorite podcast, that podcast platform. So helps people find us, and we really appreciate it. And if you leave a written review, we'll read it on the podcast. So. Like Matt said, have a good one. Thanks for listening. See you guys next week. Peace.